Well, indeed, what a busy week of ministry it has been for many of us. As uh, our elder Bob shared and Huey prayed for and um, mentioned, that we had our uh, first ever in-house BBS at Art and Denise's home. Again, thank you guys uh, for opening up your home to all the children, teachers, and volunteers. Really a show of hospitality. It was an incredible turnout, incredible ministry. You know, up to now we've done, uh, we've used curriculum from outside places and they would always have themes like Egypt and the mummies and robots and rockets and spaceships. And we got together and said, let's just go for the jugular. You know, let's go for the knockout punch. Why all these you know, dog and pony shows? Let's proclaim the gospel. So it was the most biblically done vacation Bible school I've ever seen in my life. They had the toddlers, like two-year-olds with Elizabeth and... And Daniel and Anna and Sarah, they're doing uh, original sin from Genesis 3. <laughs> and uh, elementary students, they're doing uh, the doctrine of God's holiness and his anger towards sin from Isaiah 6. The junior high students, um, Mike Castillo was doing the whole gospel message. And I think he did a session on substitutionary atonement from 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I mean, he actually did. And the students got it. One of the students that were visiting uh, was a neighborhood friend. He was telling, uh, telling us, just on his own initiative, how he loved the time here, how he's learned so much from the Bible, and he was really encouraged. So we were encouraged just to hear him, him say that. Well, praise God for all the teachers and leaders of our children's ministry, um, Francis, Art, and also Danny. Keep up the good work. Uh, we'll continue to support you by, by prayer and laboring alongside with you. And also, we just had this past, or yesterday, uh, Mr. Joe Jung uh, married Miss uh, Elaine, Elaine Jung now, I guess. And uh, they were wed yesterday. I mean, uh, who knew? You know, he was saved in 1995, around December. I remember seeing this guy become a Christian. And I don't know, <laughs> didn't think too much of him. You know, we'll see what happens. And to see him just grow and grow and grow, I mean, Joe... He never stopped growing spiritually. It was amazing. And Elaine, she's just this rock. And um, as we were shared in the wedding, Elaine's been, I mean, Joe's been pursuing Elaine for four years. Twice a year, he would ask for her heart. And she would say, no. And a couple of times, she said, never. <laughs> and she literally did. She said, definitely not. And so the, the back story is, Seren actually met with Elaine and said, Hey, Elaine, theologically, that's not right. <laughs> Biblically, you can't say for 100% Joe's not the guy because you don't know God's will. James chapter 4. So Elaine's like, okay, I can't say definitely, but I can say 99.9% no, right? <laughs> you can. And she did. And that encouraged Joe that he had, and he did. That he had a 0.1% chance. He was so, he came to me and he was turning red. So happy that he was now in the radar in terms of possibility. And well, it finally happened. And we were actually there when he proposed. We were at the restaurant and he got on his knee and the lights came up. Christmas lights. Lane, will you marry me? And he was there for a long time. And, he, and there was no like embracing or anything. So Cern and I were like, let's leave, guys. <laughs> I think she's saying no, so let's not. <laughs> but they embraced, and she said yes. Well, praise God for that. 
long to have them return. And if you don't know, Joe is pursuing full-time ministry at Master's Seminary. So I told Joe, he knows more going into seminary than I, when, I, when, I, when I went in. I mean, I didn't know anything going into seminary. He knows so much more. I know that he's going to be just blessed with the instruction and example, all the examples that are there. And then this past week, Thursday, we have eight uh, um, members of our team come back from Czech Republic. What a great report we've heard from them throughout for the past few weeks about their work there and to see them in person and just to have them back was a true encouragement. And a greater encouragement is several of them are really praying about going long term. So praise God for that. I mean, praise God. You know, Peter, uh, Pastor Peter at, at Czech Republic, you know, he never asks for anything else except for two things. He asks for prayer and he asks, send us people. We need people. We need help. Send us men. And, uh, you know, it's been a burden for Bob and I for many years. We just weren't able to send people because, for various reasons. But now I think we have people that we can send. So we long for that, that time. I was at the airport, LAX, 12 times this summer. <laughs> Next time, we'll send someone for the long haul. So I don't have to go back so soon <laughs> after that. But I long for that to happen. Be in prayer for that. The gallery raised up people would go off to um, maybe a one-year, two-year term missions to the Czech Republic. And we're continuing to pray, praying for several families to go within five years. Well, I know you, many of you are tired from this whole week, so I have a long sermon in John 14 to uh, wake you up. Well, let's go to the Gospel of John, chapter 14. Again, it has a singular theme, this whole chapter. Verse 1 and verse 27 declares Christ's words, Let not your hearts be troubled. The chapter is sandwiched with these words. Let not your hearts be anxious, agitated, harassed, distressed, disturbed. Do not let your hearts be discouraged. Stop. Passive voice. Meaning, do not let things outside of you cause your hearts to be disturbed. It's in the imperative mood, the verb, and it's a command by Christ to the disciples. Now, what is our Lord referring to? A bit of a review. What is troubling the hearts of these disciples? And the Bible is not talking about troubles that affect all of us. Life is full of troubles. Right? Bills and taxes and cars breaking down and, and relationship issues and I mean, just work problems and, and, and pressures of life. Christ is not talking about like, esteem issues here. He's talking about unique troubles that affect Christian hearts. He's talking about unique troubles that assail and oppress the hearts of true believers this is trouble limited only to the righteous. What are they? And from the previous text, we see three sources, three causes of trouble in the believer's heart. First is the physical separation of the believer from Christ, the absence of Christ. In John thirteen thirty-three, our Lord said, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Now I am saying to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I am leaving you now. I must go. I must leave you. You know, we're, I mean, most of us are adults here. We're grown men and women. But before Christ, we are 
but infants. We are toddlers. And we saw that at, at Joe's wedding where Elizabeth wanted to be with Soren. Um, at VBS, these toddlers, they wanted to be with their parents. Um, growing up, did you ever get lost in the mall? Right? Did you ever get separated from your parents at a sporting event or some kind of amusement park and just not seeing your parents around just horrified you, scared you? And maybe you were like in high school or something. I don't know. <laughs> Even then. But elementary, junior high, you were, you were just upset and you were in tears because your parents weren't around and you didn't know where they were at. Well, we might be men. We might be grown women here now. But before Christ, we're still children. And we need... We desire, we long for the physical presence of Christ. And here are these 12, 11 strong men, and they were horrified, they were anxious, they were discouraged. But the mere fact that Christ will be leaving them. And that's why Peter says, Why can I follow you now? Why must you leave? Why must you go? Why can I be with you? That is the longing of all true Christians. And that is why believers, we long for heaven. Why? Because the non-Christians long for heaven because you know, they don't want to go through the earthly trials, the physical sufferings, the emotional turmoil of regular life. Christians, we long for heaven not because of those things. We long for heaven because we long for Jesus Christ. That's where Christ is. We want to go to heaven because that's where He is. If He was in hell, we want to go to hell. Right? Wherever He is, we want to be with Him. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That is my longing. That is my heart cry. And when the disciples heard that Christ was leaving them, they were distraught. That was the first source of their discouragement. Second cause of trouble was the failure, is the failure of other believers. The failure of other believers. Notice again that John 13 and 14, there is no transition. It is... A direct continuation, same dialogue, same room, same discourse. Our Lord had just predicted the leader of the disciples, Peter himself, would deny him, betray him three times. And I'm sure as the disciples heard this, they were horrified, they were shocked, caused them to doubt. Peter denied the Lord. It discourages believers when they hear that others are not walking in the Lord. It causes our hearts to literally sink. Failure, sin of other believers, seeing others, other believers stray away from Christ, seeing believers you believed in fall away, make decisions that make it clear that Christ is not their priority. Like demons, they go into the world because they love the world. Christians see that and it... It, it, it unbuckles our hearts and makes it loose and we can't find our bearings at times because it is such a sad thing to see. This is one of the significant difficulties for those who are in ministry. We've got four seminary guys. One's having fun right now at honeymoon, but three of you guys, let me speak to you. I mean, this is the discouragement of ministry. This is the occupational hazard of going into full-time ministry. Everything else pales into comparison of ministering to people and serving people, seeing them grow and having them fall away. It happens time and again. The pastors, which I just came back from, ten pastors coming together, 
We're all sharing our battle scars. And what are our scars? It's people. People that are no longer walking with Christ. They've fallen away. And that's why we're so encouraged by our missionaries. I mean, here's Peter Smith. Eighth year in the mission field. I mean, eight years. And where is the fruit? Where are these people? He has a laundry list of people who profess Christ and straight away, right? He has pictures upon pictures. He's got a roster full of people who are, who are showed initial faith in Christ and now they're no longer in the church. But where are the faithful men and women at the Cloudmo Church? Likewise with Tim Coyle. Likewise with Pakistan at, at, at Kazakhstan. You know, that's why John said in 3 John 1, 3, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking the truth. This is the unique joy of believers. We're just happy. We just rejoice. When we just come to church and we see each other's faces and we hear you're walking the Lord. I mean, that's just, that's, a, that's just heaven right there. So that conversely, it's true. The opposite is true. There's no greater sadness, no greater sorrow than to hear that believers are no longer walking with Christ. You know, all the heights of joy when we hear that believers are doing well and all the valleys of despair when we hear of believers straying away from the Good Shepherd. At times, it is crippling. It is near paralyzing. First reason. Second reason. The third reason for troubled hearts, and the greatest reason, is not just the physical absence of Christ. You add to that the failure of other believers you add to that the greatest sorrow, greatest source of sorrow is our own failure. Our own failure as Christians. Our own sins. Our own straying. I mean, can you imagine if you were Peter that night and you say, I will die with you. I love you. I promise this. I'm going to follow you if it means my life. And Christ says, Peter, you will disown me three times and it actually happened in Luke 22 Peter was in the courtyard of Pontius Pilate and he saw Christ being beaten whipped mocked spat at crowned with thorns and Peter was confronted and he denied the Lord three times the rooster crowed across the courtyard Luke 22 62 their eyes met Christ Looked at, him, looked at him to encourage him, and Peter went outside to weep bitterly. I mean, the, the sorrow that must have flooded Peter's heart that night. I mean, from that point on, I believe he walked with a limp. He was irreparably crippled spiritually. He, that boast, that self-confidence, that self-made man, that speak first and think later kind of Peter was, was done away with. From that night on, he was different. His heart was broken. Because of his own failures. And I've said this before, I've met Christ in the courtyard of my own denials. Um, by far, what keeps me awake at night is not the other things, but it's my own coldness of heart, my own pride, my own sinfulness. Someone asked me, James, is that true? I've never heard any pastor say that. I'm like, yeah, I've never either, but that's the reality. I might be the weird one, I don't know, but that's my reality. There is a truth to that. Don't you, don't you believe that? As you draw near to, to Christ, you, know, you grow holier, but because you're comparing yourself no longer with the people of the world or young Christians, you compare yourself with God and you see your life in light of Christ's holiness, that you, you're, you're, you do better but feel worse. 
right? You're walking in greater maturity, but you feel more miserable because you see the deeper layers of sin that the Holy Spirit gently uncovers one at a time. And, and the sins that you uncover are not the behavioral sins that it just, you know, work a little harder and you, you kind of fix. The things that the Holy Spirit uncovers is the attitudinal sins. It's the, the base, the foundational the core selfishness, the core idolatry that, that produces all these behavioral sins. The Holy Spirit uncovers that, and you just, you just step back, and you're overwhelmed. And you say, by the grace of God go I. It is only by the cross of Christ am I saved, am I sanctified, and do I minister. These three things are assail believers, trouble believers. It tempts us to cower. It tempts many to fear. And it has tempted many to give up, to stop running this race. You know, just stop fighting. You know, just go through the motions. Yeah, I'll come to church. You know, I'll just show my face at Bible study. You know, I'll go to the retreats and I'll look like I'm taking notes and I'll share. You know, I'll share what God is doing in my heart. But, oh, you just kind of give up in your heart. You just you've quit. You're not fighting that fight. You're not running this race. You know, definitely not running to win. You're just kind of running to be in the race. You know, hi, Mom. You know, I'm here, right? But you're not running to win the race. In this long race of faith, these troubles have dealt severe and sometimes deadly blows to many well-meaning Christians. And as I thought about this this week, I was reminded of um, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And I took it out and read some excerpts and I was just encouraged um, you know, John, the author who wrote this story, um, it's not just, you know, a very creative story that was written by some guy, but he was a pastor who was sent to prison because of the gospel. Um, he had, his wife passed away a year before, and he remarried, and he had four children. One of them was blind. And so he went to prison for 12 years. And at any time, if he said, I will not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, I will preach the gospel of the Church of England, he would be set free at any time. One time his blind daughter came to, the, uh, to jail, and they were so poor, they were so hungry, uh, you could tell that they were having a difficult time. And he writes in his journal, the, the, the pain in his heart, being separated from his family was by was he akinned to being separated me to the bone, being torn apart. And yet he stayed in jail because of his faith. And while in prison, he began to write the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, next to the Bible, perhaps the most the world's best selling book, translated into over two hundred languages. If you have not read it as a believer, I encourage you to pick one up. Actually we were actually there. So he had the opportunity to go to the prison where he was held, to visit his church, to visit the museum that has his artifacts. Well, in the book, The Journey of Two Pilgrims, Hopeful and Christian, there's a specific story that details for us um, the troubles that assail believers and the way to get out of the troubles, um, the way for believers to escape the torment of the heart. It's somewhat lengthy, but it really is worthy of our listening. Christian and hopeful, they're journeying on to the city of God when they came upon a castle called Doubting Castle. 
the owner was giant despair. And it was in his grounds they now were sleeping. He caught Christian and hopeful asleep in his grounds with a grim and surly voice. He bid them awake and asked them where they had come from, what they were doing in, their, in his ground. They told him they were pilgrims. They had lost their way. Then said the giant, You have this night trespassed on my land. Therefore, you must come along with me. They were forced to go because he was stronger than they. The giant drove them before him and put them in his castle into a very dark, nasty, stinking dungeon. Hence they lay from Wednesday morning till Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop to drink or light or any to ask how they were doing. They were far from friends and acquaintances. Now in this place, Christian had double sorrow because it was his idea to go through this land. Now giant despair had a wife. Her name was Distrust. So when he was going to bed, he told her about these prisoners. And she counseled him that when he awoke in the morning, he should beat them without mercy. So when he arose, he took a grievous crab tree staff and went down into the dungeon to them. And there he beat them as if they were dogs. He beat them fearfully, so much so they were not able to help themselves or turn themselves from the floor. This done, he withdrew and left them there to mourn under their distress. The next night, she asked further about them, and understanding that they were yet alive, she counseled him to tell them to end their own lives. So in the morning, this giant went to them in a surly manner. Perceiving them to be in much pain, he told them that you will never come out of this dungeon. You will die in pain, so end this misery with their own hands, either with knife, rope, or poison. Why choose to live, seeing it is attended with so much bitterness? He left them so that they might consider the ending of their own lives. The prisoners consulted together what they should do. Christian said, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live this way or die with my own hands. My soul chooses strangulation rather than life, and grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Hopeful replied, Indeed, our present condition is dreadful, and death, death will be far more welcome to me than this place. But my brother, let us be patient. Let us endure a little while. The time may come that may give us a happy release. Well, towards the, the evening, the giant went down into the dungeon again. He found them alive and he fell into a grievous rage and he threatened them that if they did not commence with their ending of their own lives, it would have been better if they had never been born and they trembled greatly. Well, on Saturday about midnight, hopeful and Christian, they began to pray. And they continued in prayer to almost break of day. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, one half amazed, broke out into this passionate speech. What a fool am I, thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk in liberty. I have a key called promise that I am persuaded will open any lock in this doubting castle. Hopeful said, that is good news, good brother. 
kick it out and let us try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door whose bolt as he turned the key gave back and the door flew open with ease and Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard and with his key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too, he thrust open the key, thrust in the key, and he opened the gate, and they made out towards freedom, and thus they were safe. What a story, depicting, illustrating the reality of the Christian life. That when we are mired in our own castle of doubt, and we're imprisoned by giant despair and his wife, distrust. And they're pummeling us and beating us and threatening us with all evil words. And we're at the point of giving up. Oh, how we need to remember that we have a key. And that key is called promise. The promise of Christ. The promise of God. And that's what Christ does in John 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Here are six promises. Six promises that offer you hope, offer you the cure, offer you escape. Let's go to the first promise. He says in verse 2, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And he says, if that was not true, would I say that? Jesus says, it is true. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And verse 3, I am going to prepare a place for you. That is the reason I am going. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may also be. He says, I am going but it's not a permanent separation. It's a temporary separation. <clears throat> Though your heart is breaking because we're separating, one day, disciples, one day to all Christians, there will be a joyful reunion. There will be. I will come back to take you to be with myself. He begins by saying, in my father's house, there are many rooms. What does he mean by that? Now, the Israelites, they lived a certain way. The, the, the father would have the main house. There'd be a patio area. And then his son would get married and he would add a room to the house. And the new family would live right next door. When we went to Israel a few years ago, our bus driver had a similar uh, makeup, except they built you know, up instead of sideways. So we went to this, his house, uh, right by Megiddo, actually. That's where Armageddon is going to take place. So we have, we have barbecue at Armageddon, uh, where the site of the last war. So he, his dad lives in the first floor. And then it was the second floor. That's where his older brother got married. And they built the second floor on top of the first floor. And then when he got married, they built the third floor. And it took us to the fourth floor. Younger brother's engaged, right? That's where the youngest brother is going to live. Well, likewise, in New Testament times, that's what they would do. They would add a room each time one of the sons got married. And they would surround the patio, and that was the father's house. And Jesus says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. There's room for you. There is a place for you. It's not exclusive only for me. 
I am going because there is room enough for you. And he says, I go, verse 3, to prepare a place for you. I am going ahead of you so that I might make necessary preparations for you so that when you arrive, you would enjoy the full blessings of heaven and eternal life. And then the second part of verse 3b, I will come again, I will take you to myself, and there I am. You may be also. The greatest word that could ever be said to a person in sorrow is that the promise, this sorrow is temporary. Your suffering, it's not permanent. Only for a little bit. And that's what Christ is saying. I will come again, and He says, I will take you to Myself, that where I am, you may be also. He promises He will return. And that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, that in the return of Christ, when, he, when we are taken up to heaven, He will not send Michael. He's not going to send Gabriel. He's not going to send Moses or Elijah to do His work. You know, we might do that, right? We're busy. So we might not go to the airport, you know, send my wife, right, in my stead, or send my friend. Christ says, I will come myself. You will see me face to face. This job is so important. You are so precious. I myself will come down from heaven where I am sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. I will leave that privileged position and I will come to take you so that you might be with me forever. Tells us how much He loves us. There is an illustration of this two chapters later. Turn with me to John 16, 16. This illustration is for all of us, but it will be uniquely powerful to about maybe 10, 12 people in this room. And those are moms, right? John 16, John 16, start with 16, and then 20. A little while and you will see me no more. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Put on a verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. Now look at verse 16 again. In a little while, you will see me no more. But then, after a little while, you will see me. He's not talking about the resurrection. He's talking about a second coming. Because later on, he talks about that day. And that there's permanent joy. And so, he's telling the believers, he's telling us, just, to, just wait a little while. Endure a little longer. It's like a child says, you know, Dad, I'm hungry. And you say, so wait a little bit. And even a child can say, oh, I can do that. Right? I, can't, I can wait a little bit. I can't wait a few days. But I can wait a little longer. Wait a little bit and we'll, we'll get you food. That's what Christ is saying. It is, it is really just a little bit. Hang in there. And he says, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful because of these three reasons. At the same time, the world will rejoice. They will pour salt on your wound. While we are weeping, they will have a good time and they will mock at our sorrow. Where is Jesus? You guys still believe in Christ? You guys are still waiting for Him? 
they will mock us openly, laughing at us while we are weeping and lamenting. And then he says, your sorrow will turn into joy. There is a sense that your, jo- your joy will be comparable to the depth of your sorrow. So if you had great sorrow on earth because of the absence of Christ, failure of other believers, you're bemoaning your own sins, you have great joy. If you had little sorrow, you have little joy because He will turn whatever sorrow you had, He will turn that amount into joy. He's going to do it. And then in verse 21, He gives the illustration. That's why I said there are 12, maybe 10 to 12 women here who will understand this illustration. Powerful for them. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow. Right? Because her hour has come. And I was there and my wife gave birth to Elizabeth. But I can't really take any credit. You know, I can't say I know what it's like to give birth. You know, I was telling Sir, I'm, I'm here with you. You know, we're doing this together. And she gave me that look. And I, I realized, yeah, well, I'm, you're doing it all. I'm here to help you, support you, and pray for you. I'm just, a, I mean, I have newfound respect for moms after all, all you uh, dads out there, you know, dads to be, you understand. It's newfound respect for moms. It's just, just a, difficulty of, of labor and delivery. So Christ says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because of the pain, the increased pain of giving birth. So verse 21b, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Right? For joy that a human being has been born into the world, the sorrow and pain of the mother is completely washed out. When the baby is born, when you hold the child in your hands, it is gone because you're so overwhelmed with happiness, satisfaction, with joy of holding life, your own child in your hands. Moms will tell you that one of the greatest joys, if not the greatest joy, apart from knowing Christ, is the birth of her children. Jesus used this great example of human joy to illustrate how God will turn our sorrow to joy. Verse 22, Likewise, you have sorrow now, but when I see you again, your hearts will rejoice. And that's the promise of joy. And that's the promise that we have, that all Christians have, but most Christians forget, have forgotten. They're getting beaten, pummeled by giant despair and his wife distrust. And they've forgotten, wait a minute, I have this promise in my pocket. I can leave this place of despair. That's what Christ promises. You will see me again. And you will have joy. And he says, verse 22, And no one will take your joy from you. The permanence of joy. That this joy that Christ gives us at that time will be with us forever. In fact, not only permanently, it will increase in growing measure. Um, Gary talked about this, quoting Jonathan Edwards a few uh, weeks ago, how as God in His infinity, He unveils His glory, and the believers, our joy is to see the glory of God. And because God is infinite, every moment there will be a greater and greater revelation of God's beauty and glory and majesty. 
the believer's joy and satisfaction will increase on to eternity. We will never hit a peak where, okay, I was, I was the peak of heaven. Here we go. We're, you know, downhill from here. No, it'll peak forever as we see the glory of God in Christ. Well, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3. Last epistle that Peter uh, wrote. Last chapter. Clear that Peter has not forgotten this promise. And we'll close with our just applications from um, Peter's second epistle. Chapter 3, verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And they will say to you, where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on, and ever since the beginning of creation, it's always been the same. Where is this return of Christ? These scoffers will say, either by speech or by their deeds, how they live their lives. They will waste their lives, they'll give their lives for immoral pleasures, temporal pleasures. They will follow after vain pursuits, and by their lives, they're saying, Christ is not coming back. He is not a God of promise. He is not able to keep His promise. By their speech and their conduct, they will scoff at believers who hold on to this promise. Where is this coming? Verse 9, we must remember, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. He's not. As some understand slowness, He is being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Understand this, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. That's the truth. Now here's the application of verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Peter's asking us a question. Since everything in this world is going to be destroyed, how should we then live? And we go to the beach and we build a sandcastle, but we don't go all out in this effort. Why? Because we know the sandcastle is temporary. Tide's going to come in and wash it away. Well, likewise with this world. These Olympic athletes, they... They give their whole lives to achieve a record, thinking that will last forever. It's not. There will come a day no one will remember. It will be erased with a permanent eraser, never to be recalled again. Whatever accomplishments on earth, whatever we own, all our possessions, it's going to burn. Since we know that that is the reality, that Christ is a God of promise, He will come back and we'll be with Him in heaven what kind of people ought we be? This fact ought to exert a deep and abiding influence on us to lead a particular life as Christians. We should be serious, humble, and prayerful and make it a practice to habitually contemplate and meditate on this truth. It should be a matter of habit. It's going to burn. It's going to burn. It's going to burn. 
Christ is coming back. This earth is temporal. It's not going to last. All that we see will pass away. It'll have a good effect on all of our souls. It'll cause us to be sober. It'll cause us to be more serious. It'll cause us to suppress earthly ambition. I mean, we're so prone to, to vain glories, to vain ambitions. It would, it would lead us not to desire to accumulate treasures on, in, on, on earth, but lead us to accumulate treasures in heaven. And it'll cause us, verse 11b, to live holy and godly lives. Verse 14, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. What a great promise that Christ has given us, first among six. All believers have it. The issue is, are we going to use it? Many of you are in the dark and stinking dungeon of despair and distrust, of doubting, and you're fearful, you're cowering, you're afraid. May God grant each of us the wisdom to take out this key and live according to the promises of Christ leading us to freedom. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what joy there is in studying the Bible. How it nourishes our souls. How it satisfies us. How it delights our innermost being. This joy the world does not know. This joy the world cannot give nor understand. This joy is ours. And we thank you for the promises of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, for your promise. And we know that you are a covenant-keeping God. Your character has been tested and proved in the Old Testament that just like you promised to Abraham, you kept your promise to him, gave him the land, gave him everything you called it, you promised to him. So now we know that you will keep this promise. Lord, may this truth give all of us hope to live by faith in the promises of Christ and not by our sight, not by our experiences that we might be free to live for you, to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.